0: Life
1: is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
0: of a detour. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science people!
2: Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. The old
1: question in science is, how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success.
2: I'm about to show you something
1: so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules... It's a call-in show if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do. Leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785, 201-472-0785, or go to askbillnye.com. You can check me out on all my socials, and you can find out who our upcoming guests will be, and you can leave us a question. Now today... We are joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend. Seriously. Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Oh, Bill. It's always such fun
2: being here with you. And now, Bill, you know me pretty well, right? Sure I do. Okay. What do I love in life nearly as much as I love my family and of course you?
1: Uh right. Uh the uh you like the um There's a word for it. End of the world-y stuff.
2: Uh, Oh, yeah. The the apocalypse. Eschatology. 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 I like uh, death and destruction. And one of my favorite (laughs) examples of death and destruction, real life death and destruction, of course, is the enormous asteroid impact that occurred 66
1: million years ago and caused crazy mayhem everywhere. And it, it it changed the world. You know it what changed do we say the history about, of life on Earth. What do we say about uh, kids? Kids of all ages. Two things: space and dinosaurs. And this is you're in luck, Corey. You're in luck because we have space and dinosaurs and an expert. Our guest today is Professor Joanna Morgan. She's a professor of geophysics at Imperial College in London and winner of the Meteoritical Society's Beringer Award this year.
2: Meteor- meteoritical.
1: Meteoritical. So this has to do with the sky. And Beringer, by the way, uh, is the family that owns Meteor Crater, Arizona, the Berenger Crater. So Professor Morgan. Oh, hi. <laughs> professor Morgan, <laughs> welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Joe?
3: Yes, absolutely. Very pleased to be here.
1: Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Now you became very interested. Some might say obsessed with the <laughs> uh, with the impact crater uh, off Chicxulub, Mexico, that is reasoned to be the thing that finished off the ancient dinosaurs. What do you hate, ancient dinosaurs? I mean, what's the thing?
3: Yeah. So why would I like this? So so who could who could be interested in something quite as catastrophic as this? Yeah. An asteroid hit us. Um, It changed the climate. It made us really cold and dark for years and years and um, caused a mass extinction. 76% of species, including the dinosaurs. So, yeah, who could be interested in that event? Um, So I've been interested for ages. I started um, in 1996, I think, when people had, they already knew about the asteroid had hit us, but they hadn't found the impact site until about 1990 and then people were arguing about how big this impact was and how big this crater was and it was um we couldn't really tell because it's buried beneath the surface so if you walk along the Yucatan it's absolutely flat it, it looks like a subtropical sort of jungle a flat sort of carbonate platform rocks um so it's buried about a kilometer beneath the surface of that of that area um, and they were arguing, the first thing I got, reason I got interested in is because I watched two people arguing how, about how big this uh, impact was and how big this crater was. Um, and one man said it was 170 kilometers in diameter and another said it was 300 kilometers in diameter. Wait, so it's,
2: it's two men arguing about how big their impact craters are? <laughs> this is what got you interested? <laughs>
3: yes partly yes i see i see well when you put it that way i see your point there (laughs) and it was actually sort of a very intimidating sort of environment because people as they were having this very fierce debate. People were sort of shouting and booing and hissing. And I've never heard anything like it because, you know, scientists are usually pretty quiet and sort of quite polite. So it was a – And plus
1: (laughs) to an astronomer, 170 kilometers, 300 kilometers, what's what? What's the big deal? Same order of magnitude. Yeah, what? But that's one (laughs) and a half. So
3: actually, you're right. It's not that big difference in terms of diameter, but it's actually a a difference in times 10 in in energy. So it is –
2: Ah, okay, yeah. okay. So, th- so there really was a b- a big impact, so to speak, uh, in this debate of of d- just how extreme the effects were. So, when, when that what year hit.
3: was this, by the way, Joe? Oh, the, the, where I went to this conference about nineteen ninety six. Yeah,
1: because when I was uh, just graduated from university, uh, people had speculated that this that I guess the Chicxulub crater off of Mexico was a candidate. But yeah. you you uh, mentioned that it wasn't really decided until 1990, seven or eight, ten so, years. So later. so
3: it was presented as a candidate in 1991 in seriousness, and then there was quite a lot of arguments about whether it was the the impact, the big impact that um, that produced this global ejector layer. That we that's how we first found.
1: Tell us about um, the global ejector layer.
3: Okay, so everywhere around the world you see a little thin layer of clay. It's a few millimeters thick. Um, and it's full of, um, it's, ex- it's got an extraterrestrial chemistry, so it's full of the asteroid, basically. Um, and you find that everywhere in the world. And then as you get closer to um, to the Gulf of Mexico, the, that layer gets thicker and the particles in that layer get bigger. So you sort of know that you must be getting close to the impact site. Um,
1: so, and so, so when you say you find a layer of clay, it means you you're a geologist who knows where to look.
3: So it's a very famous layer of clay because it separates the Mesozoic and Cenozoic eras.
1: Mesozoic means middle and Cenozoic means recent. Yeah,
3: that's it.
1: And the word recent, that's another question. You know, you walk around minding your own business. Some people say it's 65 million years ago. Other people say it's 66
3: million years ago. Yeah, so we have changed the timing. When I first started, it was sixty-five point five. And I think it was about two years ago they, they recalibrated and said sixty six. Who's yeah. they?
1: We thought you were they. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so the people people dating it, um, they use quite. They their techniques have got better and better. So they use argon um, argon dating. Um, so they use ratios of argon argon, and um, they so they've got they've got better and better at doing that, and they've now got to sixty six.
2: I'm just picturing. So we're drilling down through these different rock layers. And yep. there's a there's a sort of a, an upper layer, and these are the rocks of the Cenozoic. And then you hit this yep. clay, and this clay has extraterrestrial composition. It's something not of this earth. And then below yes. that is the Mesozoic. Uh, Mesozoic, when I, at least when I was a kid, that was the age of reptiles, and Cenozoic is the age right. of mammals. So this, yep. this impact that you're talking about is the boundary line between a big transition of life on earth.
3: That's right. So, as seventy-six percent of species died, including all the dinosaurs, all the big things on land. And then after that, mammals sort of took off, birds took off, um, lots of things diversified.
1: So, Joe, when I was in second or first and second grade, Mrs. McGonigal, our teacher, read to us from a big book, and she, she said the reason the ancient dinosaurs went extinct is because they had small brains. And so the mammals took all their food and the dinosaurs, ancient dinosaurs, went extinct. And even she knew that was just, no, that's lame. That cannot possibly be right. And so this mystery has been around for centuries. I mean, among human scientists, this mystery has confounded us. And I guess the question I want you to talk about, I think, is the size of this thing. You're telling me... (laughs) That a rock from space hit the Earth with such speed and carrying so much energy that it created a layer of dust in the Earth's atmosphere to shade the planet for weeks or months at a time. Is it true? I've I've heard Ed Liu, who's an astronaut who's very involved in keeping the Earth from getting hit with an asteroid, describe that the diameter of this cone of ejected material is bigger or about the same size as the diameter of the Earth? Is that right?
3: So I wouldn't quite describe it like that. So, so the ejector itself is quite a big diameter. So the sort of impact plume itself is about, ends up about a 1,000 kilometers high and a few hundred kilometers wide. 1,000 um,
1: kilometers size. so that's something above, like that, the, yeah. above the troposphere.
3: Way Yeah, the troposphere is 10 kilometers, so yeah, it's way above the stratosphere. Space
1: station's at 450 kilometers, the light sail too from the Planetary Society is at 710 kilometers, so you're way past all of that. That is a long way into the sky, peoples. Yeah,
3: so that's really, really high up, that's correct,
1: yeah. How do you do that calculation? How do you come up with that?
3: So you know how fast that... Plume expands. So you know how hot it is and how what pressure it gets to. So it's several thousand degrees centigrade shortly after it's the asteroids collided. Um and then materials being ejected at um a few more than some of it's more than 10 kilometers per second, so it's moving up very rapidly. So it, so it you gets... say
1: you know all that. How do you
3: know all that? So we can scale up, so we can see we we see these things happen. And we can watch these things happen and we can scale up to sort of um, to, to something the size of Chicxulub.
2: OK, so first of all, you actually went on an expedition and measured it. So how big is this crater? You've, you've answered oh, the right. question, so this, right?
3: So the first thing I did was, um, was I did a seismic experiment. Um, so the reason people didn't know how big it was was because they were using uh, geophysical data that's not very accurate. So it's not very really, doesn't resolve things very well. So it gave an ambiguous sort of answer. So
1: where do you, where um, do I get a geophysical datum? Where do I go? Is it a core from a from a ship? Is it a magnetometer from a helicopter? So what, is it?
3: So what we use is seismic seismic exploration. So it's very much like the um, oil companies use when they're looking for um, oil, so oil reservoirs. So they're imaging the subsurface with seismic waves, basically.
1: Like so, pounding on the ground, setting off the, little explosions? Yeah, maybe? so
3: they... So you can do that. We were doing it um, in, at sea, so we fire an air gun, um, um, an so air release, gun. release, yeah, release air at high pressure.
1: Okay,
2: so then how did how did you get your answer, how, and and what is the answer? I'm dying to so get The,
3: the answer is about two hundred kilometres wide, um, and we it's can. It's a pretty big crater. It's quite big, yeah. So, and we could, and we do that. Um, by mapping the structure of the crater, we can see where the crater rim is and and what happens across the crater, map its structure.
2: And just to be clear, when you're seeing all of this, you're seeing the actual shape of all the melt and the reverberations, all the things that were happening 66 million years ago are still kind of frozen into the planet there.
3: Yeah, so it looks just like a. If you look on the moon, you can see craters. Um, it looks the middle of the crater looks just like Schrodinger. It's got some um, beautiful rings and a peak ring, um, so it's sort of topographic hill, ring of hills in the middle of the crater. Um, yeah, so we can we we can see craters on other planets, and then we can see our images and we can sort of compare directly with that.
1: Is it true that well, is it true that people looking for oil found this thing first?
3: That's absolutely correct. Yeah, yeah. so. So this was a, a gravity low, which means it should – so when you measure g um, acceleration due to gravity, it's a bit low above the crater because all the rocks are fractured. Um, so they thought that it was is a deep...
1: a, Everybody, just think about that. These instruments are so sensitive, they can detect depressions in the Earth's crust by yeah. detecting the r- slight, ever so slight reduction really in gravity. Really small
3: change, in it, uh, you know, by a little a millionth of change in gravity, Yeah, so tiny – a, a, and, a micro G,
2: right?
0: Yeah. It, so, yeah.
2: Now, now, so now, all of this lets you reconstruct what was happening, basically, on that day when the asteroid hit. Uh, I'd love to understand, like, if I were if I were a T Rex hanging out in the Yucatan back then, would I even see the thing coming, or is it coming in so hot that I'm just vaporized before I even know what what's going on there?
3: So it comes in fast. So it goes through the atmosphere in just a few seconds. It's and then. If you happen to be looking in the right direction, you could just see it. So there is a possibility to see it before it comes in. If you were very close to the impact site, the first thing that would happen is you'd just be knocked over by the sort of excavation of the, um, the this enormous cavity, a cavity that's... <laughs> and we of- say
2: knocked over. I think you mean knocked <laughs> over pretty hard.
3: Yeah, it's obviously a little push, yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> This isn't like a T-Rex toppling on its side we're talking about. Yeah, just
3: having a little limp about, you know, a bit more than that. Um, I mean,
1: the scale of it, you guys, and then everything is blown over and dead, like, immediately. Go ahead, go ahead.
3: Yeah, so so anything within a thousand kilometers would get incinerated um, almost instantaneously. So so that's 10 hours
1: of highway driving. If you're within 10 hours of highway driving, you are blown over and
2: vaporized. You, in, in you, st- you
3: were incinerated, yes, because... Now it's getting incinerated
2: by a, by a blast wave, or how is it getting incinerated?
3: So, so there's a vapor plume that's very hot, an impact plume that's rising up very quickly. Um, the thing that I said goes to 1,000 kilometers high, and, it's a, and that starts off as being opaque. So as it's first rising in this sort of big, buoyant mass of air, it's opaque, but at a certain critical temperature it suddenly becomes transparent. Okay, okay, whoa, 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 whoa,
1: whoa. It's so hot that light doesn't go through it? It's it's a
3: plasma initially, yes. So it's like it's a, it's a sparking
1: lightning. lightning mobile and you but yes. you, and you can't see
3: through it. Wow. So 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 but and then at some point almost instantaneously it becomes transparent and it emits all this uh, thermal radiation, so it so it emits electromagnetic heat. waves. Yeah, yeah heat. Yeah, about 20 times the um, higher than the sun. So it's like having a second sun in the sky, basically.
2: Well, you like having 20 suns in the sky, it sounds 20 like.
3: 20, se- yes, 20 su- Yes, the sun, but worse, yeah. Wow.
1: Okay. Well, well, okay well, so, well. So, right, so these so, are
2: dinosaurs getting flash fried, basically. Flash
1: fried. Okay, that's within 1,000 kilometers. All right, now what if you're, who are you? You're a velociraptor. We're, we, <laughs> we were extant in, yeah. Uh, in, uh, uh 66 million years ago but we're on the other side of the world we're we're in mongolia we're mongolian velociraptors okay we are not vaporized instantly what yeah, happens you're not to vaporized
3: us vaporized instantly yes so the first thing you'll notice is seismic waves um which which you may it'd be a bit like um a truck running past so you wouldn't be a really strong seismic wave by the time you've got to mongolia and they
1: probably had limited experience with trucks
3: yeah, they wouldn't. They wouldn't have said, "Oh, that's a truck." Yeah, you're right. But they didn't they have much would,
1: experience with uh, with
2: asteroids either, so who knows? <laughs>
3: um, so the next thing that you'd feel would you'd start seeing essentially the dust clouds coming up and 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 coming towards you and going above you. So so all the ejected material from the impact site and the asteroid um, gets forms into this. Um, fast-moving dust cloud that's traveling at about 50 to 100 kilometers above the Earth's surface. Um, It's traveling at about one to two kilometers per second, and it goes all the way around the world in something like two to three hours, something like that. So, So a few hours after the impact, if you're in Mongolia, you would see it start to get dark, and it would get darker and darker.
1: In the modern world, if we did not have a pandemic, if I chose to fly to China, It would take me from the west coast of the US, it would take me 10 hours, 12 hours to fly from Britain over a great circle. Is it 12, 15 hours? You're saying in three hours, this vapor, this dust cloud gets from what is currently Mexico to what is currently Mongolia.
3: Yeah, that's correct. Whoa.
1: And it's held on the Earth's surface by gravity or held near the Earth's surface by gravity and whoosh, comes around. And now what happens? I'm covered with dust. I am vaporized. What happens to me in Mongolia? So, so it's
3: obviously it gets dark. Um, some of oh, the material... obviously,
1: obviously it gets dark. <laughs> so how thick is this cloud layer? How thick is this dust layer from a Mongolian velociraptor's point of view?
3: So basically it's very thick. It's, it's tens of kilometers, but of course it's spread out. It's not sort of dense. It's like having this sort of two millimeters layer of clay which is above you so it still is taking out sort of something like 90 percent of the of the sun's um, radiation so it's so it's um, dark now so what it's happens? pretty dark yeah. the
1: dust settles um, the iridium settles
3: so the so the bigger particles come out more quickly um you'll probably see them then appear a little bit like meteors so they would be sort of red sparks coming towards you and the, the dust cloud itself stays up we're not entirely sure, but it's anything from about a year to fourteen, fifteen years. A year,
1: a dust yeah. cloud for a year, or maybe yeah. fifteen years. So this is because the particles are so fine that they don't they don't sink the, very quickly. They're
3: yeah, so th- so that's what we know least well is the exact distribution of the particle sizes. So and the meanwhile, finer a lot of, a lot of the, the
1: Earth is
2: burning. Also,
3: yeah. But that happens. That's not in the first few hours. So, the, close to the impact site, we've got um, fires being ignited, and then sometime over the next few months, we've got probably global wildfires. So, almost everywhere on Earth is set on fire at some point. Um, so we can see we can see that because there's so much soot in the in this clay layer, this funny clay layer, this this extraterrestrial clay now, layer.
2: Now, wh- why is it burning months later? That seems strangely delayed. <laughs>
3: Yeah. So we've done lots of quite sophisticated models, and we can't. The there's no particular way to ignite it straight away, but we. But basically, it gets dried partly by the radiation from the incoming injector. It's there, sort of, in these cold conditions, so it's not thriving anymore. It's not photosynthesizing. So you've got all this fairly unhealthy flora around the world that's not doing very well, and it's more. Um, susceptible to ignition. So it's just ignited by normal natural wildfires. We think there was a lot more storms, a lot more hurricanes, because of this sort of dramatic change to the Earth's climate.
1: Okay, so what happens in between? If you're near, you're uh, the Tyrannosaurus, and you're near the Chicxulub impact, you're vaporized, you're incinerated. It's over in, in a moment. If you're a velociraptor in what is now China or Mongolia... It takes three or four hours for the sky to get extremely dark, and then I guess it gets very cold, and you can't find anything to eat, and in a few days you die over there. What happens if you're somewhere in between? You're in London right now.
3: So London was a lot closer than it was is now, so, so because the Atlantic hadn't opened. Um, so London probably you'd would, you would feel those earthquakes and be the Earth would really move a little bit more. The dust cloud would reach you in about 30 minutes, perhaps 45 minutes. You might also get a blast, a uh, sort of hurricane-force winds. So, sort of the, sh- the shock wave hasn't yet slowed down um, to normal sort of velocities. So, so, so when you move ejector through um, air at very high velocity um, above the speed of sound, you you produce these shock waves, and they turn into sort of high velocity, like hurricane-force winds that. Definitely reached as far as Canada, probably not quite as far as, um, as London.
0: Stick around for more Science Rules after this. Want to make Mom's Day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th.
1: And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
0: Science Rules is back.
2: There's a word you haven't mentioned, which I'm very curious about, and that's tsunamis. I'm thinking there must have been just these giant ocean waves going on, too. Did that have an effect?
3: Um, so certainly we can see lots of evidence for tsunamis um so we think a tsunami went the whole way up the western um, interior all the way to Canada so we've seen we can see that in the deposits and in so in the middle of America um, you can see tsunamis people have reported them in in the North Sea so right across the Atlantic when you um, say
1: reported them in the North Sea they've looked at the sediments and yeah. determined that there's like some sloshing enormous sloshing
3: they've Determined, they've got tsunami-like features. Yes. So, so
1: are these sort of ripples st- in the ocean floor and stuff like that?
3: So, so you see. So, what do you what do you tend to get? And then true in the western interior um, is you tend to get seiches formed. So you get a you, once you start a tsunami, you start to get some uh, rocking about, standing waves in the in the water. So, so you can see that sort of thing. So the the direction changes. You can see directional changes in the way the water's moving.
2: So, hold on. You're, ta- you're talking about all this destruction. And, you know, this is a call-in show. We got a lot of questions about the destruction and the effects of destruction. And, uh, Bill, what do you think? Should we uh, should we bring
1: in a voicemail from one of our callers? Exactly. And I think we're going to love this first one because <laughs> it's Space okay. and Dinosaurs. <laughs> Let's roll that digital recording.
0: Hi, I'm Ro. I am 10 years old, and I'm from Vancouver, Canada. My question is, did the water dinosaurs die first, or the land dinosaurs die first, or did the sky dinosaurs die first, in the mass extinction? Thank you, Bill Nye, and you're awesome.
1: Wow, Rose, I uh, love you. I'm yeah, awesome, yeah. Corey. And uh,
2: and Joe, she didn't know that you were going to be here, but I'm sure she thinks that you're awesome as well.
0: Yeah, she must.
1: <laughs> so she uses these fabulous terms: water dinosaurs, land dinosaurs, or the sky dinosaurs. What happened,
3: Rose? That is such a brilliant question. <laughs> I hardly know where to start. So where where will we? I think anything close to the craters all dies at the same time. So it's all. Anything close by is pretty much instantaneous. What happens next? I mean, we're not, there is no consensus, to be honest, but um, so most people would say that the strongest effect of this impact was the blocking of the sunlight, which reduced photosynthesis to almost nothing. So we we lost the, the basically our the base of our food chain. We lost our plants Um on the land, and we lost our plankton in the sea. So, and anything that, everything obviously lives above that. So, so the things that eat things that eat things that eventually eat the plants or eat the plankton. We basically think the the largest things, like the dinosaurs, uh, died because they had no the food chain was lost. Um, so the things out a long way away from the impact site that weren't just affected by the hurricane force winds or the the incineration by the impact plume—they probably starved to death. So, it,
1: yeah, uh, Rose, it was—it uh, was a drag. It was hard <laughs> on everybody. Whether you are a water dinosaur, a, a sky dinosaur, or a land dinosaur, it was all bad. The closer you were to this thing, the worse off you were. The sooner the dust cloud got to you, the worse off you were. Everything was bad, really quickly. That is a cool question.
2: Speaking of, makes me think of our next question, which follows on very naturally.
1: Yeah, check this out. Roll that digital recording.
0: Hi, Bill and Corey. My question is, would
3: it be considered extinction of dinosaurs if there's still animals in today's
0: day that come from the dinosaur era? Thank you.
2: It's a cool question. I mean, you mentioned, you know, 76% of the species died, but 24% 24% made it through. Crocodiles are still here. Alligators are still here. All kinds of things. Somehow the, the bird or birdie dinosaurs made it through. How did anything survive? What you're describing sounds it sounds like the end of everything, but that a is lot a, survived.
3: A super question because everything seems so bad, as you say. Um, so the I think the idea is anything that um, can live off detritus, so not Fresh living flora, um, plants, and um, plankton. So things that can live off detritus, or they live off of things that live off detritus, um, were more likely to survive. Things that could, could hibernate were more likely to survive. Um, some of the reptiles could go down to quite cool conditions, um, so they were more likely to survive. Things that uh, had seeds that could, um, so, so some things had cysts or seeds that could, you know, stay there for a while until things got better. So And most things that survived were smaller, so they, I guess they need less food. They were less sort of dependent on a constant supply of food.
1: So here's the thing. Everybody of all ages is fascinated with this question. What happened to the ancient dinosaurs? It's, just, it's so compelling. What got you excited about this? You're a, geo, you're a geophysicist.
3: Geophysicist. So, so the first time I, I got into this because I knew I was an expert in the technique that could solve the problem about crater size. Uh, how, what um, made
1: you an expert? In, blah, 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 just a second. Oh, how, sorry, how did sorry, you become sorry, sorry, an expert so a,
3: in such a thing? <laughs> I did a PhD in seismology. So I did a geophysics degree and a PhD in seismology.
1: Okay. Another thing for those of us on the outside, you're a geophysicist. I am which means you're not a physicist and you're not a geologist. So Joe, what made you a geophysicist? What took you down this road?
3: So geophysics had you know we just found out about plate tectonics. That helped us explain subduction zones, volcanoes and all these things, so earthquakes. So it was a sort of exciting time for geophysics um, in that you by the time you got to your third or fourth year, you were learning things that had just happened in the press. So you were sort of they were new. They were sort of hypotheses being developed. So it was a, it seemed like a, quite an exciting sort of field to pick.
2: So you gotta, you gotta be in your bonnet about here's this, there's this impact in the Yucatan that, that that is associated. People think it's associated with the demise of the dinosaurs. You wanted to understand this thing, and did you think at the time, oh, I need to. I need an expedition there. I need to go see this thing. I need to drill into this thing. What was your motivation? What, what was your process?
3: So, so firstly, to find out more about this crater. So to really, um, it still wasn't fully established that this was the crater that um, caused the mass extinction, the impact that caused the mass extinction. Um, and then, and then it sort of emerged to sort of other things that we didn't understand about cratering, so how craters formed. Um, so when we drilled into the crater, we. Found we drilled into the rocks have been fluidized, and they were amazing. Wait, hold on how,
2: how do you, how do you do this? How do you? <laughs> I feel like we're 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 missing something here of like how you actually get to this crater and drill into this crater and understand this crater. You spent what twenty years doing this?
3: Yeah, so there was eighteen years in between me starting to study the crater and actually getting the drill and putting my proposal in to drill the crater and then actually drilling it. Um, so that so that wasn't. 18 years I think so so you write a proposal you have to get a scientific consensus you go through lots of um you have to persuade you know the community that this is a really interesting exciting proposal you have to raise the funds the funding is quite expensive so the project took about it was about 10 million dollars to drill into this crater um so that's a whole years of drilling money so you know it really has to be a very good exciting proposal to for the community and the the um people deciding on who gets the funding to decide decide to drill. Um, We were sort of slightly lucky that the oil price dived in that um, it was going to be $20 million. They were saying that's too expensive. And it sort of, because of the oil price dive, it ended up being about $10 million. And it made it just about affordable. So we had a bit of luck with that. Um, We also added lots of sort of, when I first started. I was interested in the crater and how craters are formed and how you get ejected from the impact site all around the world, sort of that sort of thing. Um, But then we realised that there was sort of a whole load of other objectives that we hadn't thought about, which was um, about life basically. So, So people think life might have originated in impact craters. Here was a large impact crater um, you mean, we know it an ex- uh,
1: three and a half three point seven yeah, 3.8 years ago.
3: billion years ago yeah. so when we had lots of impacts we had lots of um, crater basins um, and this is a sort of big-ish impact and it's um it's pristine it's all intact so we've got the sediments that that are just above the crater that, that that you know haven't that are still there now 66 million years later why,
1: why is it intact it hasn't been, weathering, so it's, so it's it's on been a quiet
3: yeah. yeah so so the other Two biggest craters have been extremely eroded, so and they've been tectonically deformed, so that you you can't quite see the you where can't are those, see the top. What are the other
1: two big craters?
3: So Sudbury in um, Canada and Reedfort in South Africa. Those those are the next. Those are the two biggest craters in the world that we know of. There's, there will be more than that, but those are the ones we actually know. When you say "will," people will find them. Yeah. So we've you're, been. are not seeing one
1: we, coming in right now. An no,
3: journey. no. Yeah, yeah. yeah because no, not, you no, would let us no, know if that not. were happening, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll mention it.
2: Okay, thank <laughs> you. Okay, so at so what point are you walking onto a boat and saying, okay, today we sail to the to the Chicxulub crater. We're going to go find some dinosaur remains. When did that happen?
3: So we drilled the crater in 2016, and um, that expedition took about three months in total. So the scientists were on themselves for about uh, sort of 11, 12 weeks. And so how,
1: when you say drill, how many dr- how many cores did you sample?
3: So we drilled continuously from about 500 meters below the surface to about um, 1350 meters below the surface. So we had core from 500 to 1350 meters, continuous core, about six and a half inches wide. And so, so, how, and
2: how, so how much geologic time is that?
3: So we started um, at about um, 50 million years, and then we got through to the crater the crater we is got one date it's 66 million years
1: so how many how many places along the crater did you drill
3: so we just drilled one uh, because uh, we could only afford one hole so that, that that's was the,
1: that's what 10 million dollars gets you is one hole
3: yeah one hole yes it was a very nice <laughs> hole though it turned out to be perfect
1: uh how did you how did you find the perfect place to drill what were the criteria
3: um so we were trying to drill into this thing called a peak ring this topographic ring of mountains in the middle of the crater um partly because that was close to the surface so it's in the middle of the crater but it's also was a was only 600 meters below the surface so that was within reach
1: below the surface of the um, sea
3: so the sea was the sea was only about 20 meters deep where we drilled so oh that's so where you can go scuba
1: diving right there yeah
3: absolutely um and then we would, we drilled in a sort of little valley where we were hoping to get um, sort of a nice sort of pristine section of rocks that sat that were deposited above the crater immediately after the impact. Um, and the point of that was to try and see how life returned into that crater, into the ocean basin in the sort of months to years after the impact. Well, so that, recovery. So now,
2: now that sounds pretty quick. So you're saying that life actually, despite all this devastation, life bounced back in in years months relatively short order there
3: so so right above the crater we've got this 80 centimeter thick layer that's that's dark brown and in that layer we can see some life that was living in the years following the crater it's not healthy so the rocks are brown they don't the numbers of of species in the rocks are quite small
2: but this is right Um, at ground zero that life is bouncing back just in the next few
3: years yeah, so this was, we think, um, things that were brought back by the ocean resurge into the crater. So from some distance away, I think life was brought back into the crater and it was able to survive.
0: Science Rules will be right back.
1: Life is a Highway and on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Met Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
0: You're listening to Science Rules.
2: You mentioned that craters like this might have actually helped create life on Earth, which is, is, is like maybe even one level bigger than wiping out some of the life on Earth. How would that work, and and did you get any evidence about that from what you studied in the, in the Yucatan?
3: So the so the idea there is that um, so these craters are hot, so we have a big superheated melt rock sort of inside the middle of the crater, um, so quite a thick sort of pile of a uh, pool of melt. Um, the peak ring that we drilled into is really heavily fractured, so it's got a high porosity, so so life can get into that bit. So we've got circulating Ocean water circulating through those rocks through warm um, rock, yeah, through warm rock. Yeah, that's correct. So warm water circulating through warm rock, and we've got venting, just like at um, in the in the oceans, you've got um, hydrothermal vents right across the crater basin. Um, so How cool! We, we, wow, that is quite cool. Yeah. So we thought that would make it absolutely sterile and nothing would live, but what what's living is actually six hundred meters above the peak ring at the surface. So the plankton are sitting at the surface, and they're still living. They're not being affected by all that below. Um, But we also found um, microbes in the crater rocks, so actually in the crater itself, um, that are living now. So they're they're, they're at what we call a deep biosphere. So we found things living now, modern life, in those rocks. Um, So
2: so it, it fried all the dinosaurs, but it also sort of created this little microbial incubator?
3: Yeah, as far as we can tell, yeah. So, 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 and that's a big surprise. So life came back really quickly into the crater, plus the life that's currently in the rocks, um, in the crater rocks, must have got there quite soon after the impact. They can't be put there now, it's too late. So so those microbes have sat there evolving for the last 66 million years, and they're still alive in the crater.
2: Wow. So could that be how life began on Earth? Is that really what you're saying?
3: So, So the idea is really that... Um, it is possible for life to survive in these big impact basins, even though you've got these very hot impact craters and hot water circulating. Um, it seems to show that it's not impossible for life to appear. And um, it would be slightly different. It would be thermophilic life. So it would be stuff, life like in Yellowstone. Thermophilic,
1: heat-loving heat life. Heat-loving heat loving
3: life, mm. yeah, would be like that, yeah.
1: And, they, you know, there's microbes that live in this almost boiling water. And then in in... The deep ocean vents; it's way above surface boiling. The water, the pressure keeps the water from boiling, and there's enormous ecosystems that thrive. It's freaking amazing. So, look, are you concerned about another asteroid impact?
3: I'm sure we will be hit by. I mean, we we know we're hit by um, m- meteors all the time. So we know we get something like um, fifteen thousand tons of meteoritic material arrives on Earth every year. So it's constant. You know, we had. Um, 20-meter-ish type um, meters come through and cause some sort of devastation, Tunguska sort of flattened a forest. So we know it's going to happen. Um, fortunately, when this size happens every 100 million years, so we're pretty hopeful it's not going to be as big as this. But it is, a, it is a worry.
1: At the Planetary Society, we like to joke that there's no evidence that the ancient dinosaurs had a space program. But we do so if we were thoughtfully thankful, and found one of these things with our name, with the Earth's name on it, we would do something about it. We'd build some sort of spacecraft or system to give it a nudge to keep us from getting a hit. Now, when this event happened 66 million years ago, this thing comes through the sky and it created these shock waves in the air. This might lead to lightning, which would lead to lo- what, Corey? which would lead to
2: a lightning round. Is is that the lightning that ignited the global forest fires 66 million years ago?
1: Either that, it was recorded in a recent thunderstorm. So it's time. Either way, it's it's
2: time for the lightning round. Dr.
1: Morgan, it's time for the lightning round. Okay, here we go. What is the most painful thing? What is the most serious thing that happens in an asteroid impact?
3: Oh, so the radiation from the... Um, the impact plume. So that's, I t- that got to tell you, that that, gets
1: you the sky, the air gets so hot. You can't see through it. That's amazing. Okay. Where would you <laughs> want to be? Where would you want to be during a big impact?
3: I'd like to be on the moon.
1: Ah, there you go. With wearing dressed dressed properly.
2: Right, and, and you'd have an incredible view. That actually
1: probably well, that would be view, amazing absolutely. to watch. Absolutely, <laughs> if, if it's lined if you're up, you're on the
3: right, right. side. <laughs>
1: All right, and if so, you say you haven't studied uh, many other mass extinctions, but you have an interest. If you could study another one, what mass extinction event would you want to study?
3: Oh, probably the permo Triassic. That's the one that killed ninety-six so. percent.
1: That, that's everyone knows. That's the
2: best mass extinction. I mean, it to be the mass. best. Yeah. So only
1: four percent of the living things on earth made it through that and what caused yeah. it
3: so that was um that was volcanic eruptions um siberian traps and they went through some coal seams so there was um large masses of carbon dioxide and methane released um so the hot the earth got a lot hotter so that was actually runaway sort of greenhouse sort of um took a lot more million years than this one but yeah so all right runaway greenhouse all
1: right now if if you got a dinosaur named after you what dinosaur would it be? You got any ideas there?
3: Oh, something vegetarian. I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> All
1: right. Okay, it's very peaceful of you. Uh, very peaceful. Maybe a nice, like a
2: nice little Hadrosaur type Unless dinosaur, something plant. like that.
1: All right. So, in your opinion, what are the chances of this happening again?
3: Um, so, it definitely will happen again. It's just a matter of when.
1: So, any day now, any century now, and, know, any, be- any any hundred million years now.
3: It could be, it could be tomorrow. It could be hundred million years. Yeah, nothing we don't to know.
1: worry about. Plenty to worry about now. Can are there lessons to be learned? This is probably not lightning. This is more a long, a week long drizzle. It's more of a kind of a London weather question. Are there lessons? It's, it's to a be fog le- question. <laughs> are there lessons to be learned about climate change from this impact? The sixty six million years ago. I think
3: the so. Sort of- the thing that's most um, terrifying about climate change now is it's happening so fast. So if we look at how we got the extinctions in the past that were due to global warming, they happened really slowly. But what we're doing now is faster than anything we've ever done in history. So the, the way the carbon dioxide is going up is faster than any series of volcanic eruptions. So, so it's, the scary thing is how fast it's got happening.
1: Even though many people perceive it happening in slow motion.
3: Yeah, many people don't seem to think it's hot. <laughs> uh,
1: there you go. But it is. Everybody, this has been the most fun ever. I mean, this we have space and dinosaurs, we have inferring extraordinary information from having the process of science to discover what happened with this crater off the what And we have incandescent
2: now. plumes of rock come twenty on. times brighter than the sun flash frying a global distribution of dinosaurs. Turning rocks to dinosaur liquid dinosaur barbecue, come on. dinosaur
1: turning rocks to liquid in an instant and killing a lot of things except th- our ancestors.
2: A thousand kilometer radius dinosaur barbecue flash fry.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much. Our guest today has been Professor Joe Morgan. She's a professor of geophysics at Imperial College London and winner of the Meteoritical Society's Berenger Award this year for her understanding of what happened that killed off the ancient dinosaurs. What a fantastic day. Thank you so much, Joe, for being our guest. It's just
3: cool. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed myself. Thank you.
1: When it comes to understanding a fiery mass extinction side of the universe, everybody... Remember, science science rules. And if you like science rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show, and helps us learn what you want to learn about. So thank you. Be sure to look at my socials for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on, on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, I hope you do. Give us a call at 201 472 or submit your question to everybody's homepage, askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and our very own Corey S. Powell. Oh, it's my Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme... Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the CCO, the chief content officer at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, everyone, science Science rules. rules. Stitcher. Life is a highway.